Well, hello, Antioch. I'm excited to be with you today. We're going to continue our series, Faith That Works. Today, we're going to be in part three as we study through the book of James. Before we go there, I want to invite you into something that our church is doing this fall that I would love for you to be a part. You just heard Erin share her experience in the Antioch Discipleship School, and we're now enrolling for that discipleship experience in the fall. I lead the school. We have a wonderful team that helps with the school, and we are excited about what the fall has in store. If you're new to the Discipleship School, we look at it as a place to grow. We believe that Jesus wants to give all of us a rich, abundant, full life, and that following him leads us into that rich life. And this school is all about setting aside time and taking in teaching and practicing things that work to be like a greenhouse of the Holy Spirit that helps us grow into the rich and full life that Jesus has for us. Because of coronavirus, we are doing the school a little differently this fall. Uh, we are going to be doing it primarily online, and we're doing it at a little bit different time than normal. And I think this is important because I believe that in adjusting the time and even bringing it online, that this is going to make a way for people who've wanted to do the school in the past but have not been able to because of scheduling or family conflicts or whatnot. But now with it being online, now with it being at a little bit different time, I believe this is the perfect opportunity uh, for so many of us to jump in and take this season of disruption and let it be a season of growth for us as we press in and grow as sons and daughters who encounter Jesus, practice his ways, and build his kingdom. If you're interested in the school or would like to learn more, you can go to AntiochDiscipleshipSchool.com and we've got all the information there and we'd love to talk with you about taking this step this fall with us. Okay, we're going to be in James chapter 3, and as you turn there, I want to tell you about a story from 1986. In January of 1986, NASA was preparing for a major space launch exploration. The reason why it was major was it was the first time that NASA was going to take a civilian into space. And they wanted to take a teacher uh, into space and have that teacher teach some lessons there as a way to engage people and, and just celebrate space travel. So 11,000 teachers applied and one teacher was selected, Krista McAuliffe. And so everyone was excited about this launch and this teacher joining the team launching into space and if you're familiar with, if you remember the Challenger, if you were alive at that time, you know what comes next. As the, as the ship launched, it's on TV, everybody's watching it. 73 seconds into the launch, the ship exploded in flames and everyone died. And America went from a celebratory moment, a moment of anticipation and promise into a time of grieving as we watch this, the potential of what this meant and the lives that were lost as we mourned over that. In the aftermath, the, the scientists tried to dig in and understand what caused this incredible spaceship to explode so quickly after being launched and what caused the, the loss of lives in the explosion. And as they dug in and as they researched, they came to a conclusion that was pretty shocking. They found that it was actually something very small on this huge, massive, expensive space shuttle. These small rubber seals that because of the temperature 
at the launch that day, it was a little bit colder than what they were used to, the seals didn't adhere. Think like the seal on your refrigerator door, like those seals when it came together, it did not adhere. And the effects of that not coming together, those seals not working properly, led to this huge explosion and fire engulfing the ship. Now, several people brought up, hey, we tried to tell you this. We tried to tell the supervisors that this was not okay, that the temperatures were wrong and the seals were not going to work, but I guess it was just overlooked, right? It just seems like a little thing. If you're looking at a huge spaceship and you're talking about little rubber seals, you know, and you've got all these eyes on you, you've got this teacher, it's a big day, it's prime time, it'd be easy just to discount it and just say, well, it's just a little thing. It can't make that much of a difference. But in the end, that little thing made a huge difference. And in that, there's a lesson for all of us that sometimes there are little things in our lives that have incredible power and potential, either for good or for destruction, as was the case with the challenger. And here in the book of James, where we're getting ready to look in chapter 3, James is speaking about one of the little things that we all have in our lives that's easy to overlook its potency and its need to be focused on. It's easy to discount it. It's easy to say, well, it's just a little thing. But like those seals, it can create a huge amount of destruction and explosion and fire. He's talking about what we're going to read today. He's talking about our tongues. He's talking about our speech. He's talking about the ways that we communicate with one another in verbal and nonverbal ways. Now, in these five chapters of the book of James, James hits on this theme about our speech a number of times. It seems like it's one of his favorite topics. And I like to think of Scripture. When I read Scripture, I try and read it from the perspective of a father speaking to a son or a father speaking to a daughter and imparting wisdom for life, imparting knowledge and love and building someone up. And so as a dad, I was thinking about what are the things that I repeat to my kids a lot? Well, I repeat things that I think are very important for them to understand. And I repeat things to them that are uh, harder to implement. Things that I'm like, I don't know if they're thinking about this or they'll remember this. It's easy to overlook, right? So I feel like they need that consistent reminder. And as we look at the book of James, the amount of times that he speaks about our speech and our tongues, it's like a father speaking to children. He's doing that because our tongues are so important. And he's doing it because harnessing their power does not come naturally or easily to most of us. And so he knows this is such an important area for our lives, and he wants to speak into that, speak into this little thing that can make a huge impact. In fact, he does this using a series of metaphors in chapter 3, starting in verse 3. James is one of the masters of metaphors, using images from everyday life to communicate spiritual truth. It's how Jesus taught. James learned from Jesus. It's how he teaches and in chapter 3, he tells us, when we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. So he brings to mind a little bit or a bridle that you put in the mouth of a horse that you can guide an incredibly strong horse where you want it to with that little bitty 
uh, bridle. Or verse 4, he said, or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. So another example of something small that has incredible power. Verse 5, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So he hits on these tiny things that can have big impact, right? A bridle on a horse, a rudder on a ship, a little spark of fire in a forest. And he says the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, strong words, strong warning about the destructive force of the tongue. Now, when you think about it, a bit is used to guide us, to guide someone, right? And our tongues guide our lives. So often the things we say, the commitments we make, the promises that we, that we agree on, uh, the words that we say to one another shape the future course of our lives. It's the same illustration with the rudder. It's a guiding thing. Uh, when we talk about the tongue as a fire, we all know that our words can be very destructive. They can burn people up. They can burn situations up. And so James is saying our tongues can get us in trouble because they guide us oftentimes into places that we don't want to end up, or they're used like a weapon to burn other people down. Then he goes on to say, uh, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. This is verse 9. We praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And so now he talks about not the way the tongues guide us or the way the tongue can incite trouble, but he talks about how our tongues can be a place of compromise, that in the same mouth and with the same tongue, we can utter praises one moment and cursings the next. And he's like, this should not be. We need to learn how to harness and master our tongues and our speech. We see this play out in everyday life all of the time. We see this play out in our relationships. There's a researcher by the name of John Gottman, who's one of the leading researchers on marriage and what makes for a healthy marriage. He's actually won four awards from the Institute of Mental Health Research Scientists for his work, including uh, he's won lifetime contribution awards from other places. He is an expert. And in his studies on marriage, he realized that there are four indicators, one, two, three, four, four indicators, which he calls the four horsemen. He said these four indicators, if they're present, he can predict divorce with 93% accuracy. Four things in a marriage. I wonder what they might be. I wonder what you think they might be, right? We throw out guesses and and we know some hot topics within marriage. Maybe it's parenting styles. Maybe it's in-laws. Maybe it's money trouble. Maybe it's sex. You know, there's a number of things that we know are hot-button issues within marriage. 
Interestingly enough, it's none of these issues that he finds are the indicators, the four horsemen that lead to destruction. In fact, all four of the things that he found through research, all four had to do with communication and communication breakdown, the way that we use our tongues, the way that we speak to one another. And he said, it's not seeing things differently. It's not the various issues, whether that family or finances. It's not those things that pulls people apart. It's the inability to communicate interpersonally about those issues that leads to this marriage that started with great potential ending in brokenness. So the four that he uh, lists all having to do with communication. Uh, he calls them the four horsemen. The first one is criticism. Criticism. He said, when couples don't see eye to eye and they choose to speak to one another, criticizing one another, and he defines criticism as not just saying, hey, I don't appreciate it when you are late. Criticism, he defines as saying, I'm coming after who you are. When you're late, you know what? The reason why is I know that you're selfish. And all you think about is yourself and you don't care about me, right? That criticism, that critical spirit. He said that's the first horseman, that if couples criticize one another, it's opening up and setting them on a course to divorce. Uh, contempt is number two. He said when we communicate in this state, we're truly mean. We speak with disrespect. We mock with sarcasm. We ridicule. We call names. We roll eyes. And when we speak with contempt, it's another one of the horsemen that lead to the destruction of relationships. Third horseman was defensiveness. Defensiveness is when instead of responding in a healthy way to critique or to feedback from our spouse, we respond with defensiveness. And the reason why that breaks down relationships is it doesn't create an environment where people are being heard, but where people are being pushed aside because someone is so defensive and protective of their own ego or pride. Fourth, uh, fourth horseman is stonewalling. Stonewalling happens when someone shuts down, disconnects, uh, just kind of gives the cold shoulder to their spouse, right? Four horsemen, all having to do with communication. And he said, when couples are strong in communication, when they can master communication, it sets their relationship on a course toward health. And when there are communication breakdowns, right, it sets the relationship on a course towards uh, divorce and breaking up. We see this not only in relationships, uh, but we see this in the workplace, in a recent study, uh, they studied 7,000 doctors and nurses worldwide. And they found of those 7,000 doctors and nurses, 84% reported that they had seen a colleague do something that they knew was wrong, cutting a corner or not doing things properly. 84% had seen something like that in the medical sphere, in the medical space. But only one in 12 had spoken up to correct the issue, right? People felt like, I don't know how to communicate about these things that are going on that I know are wrong. I just don't know how to bring it up. In the workplace, uh, they found that companies that are strong in having what they call crucial conversations, conversations when the stakes are high, those companies uh, are two-thirds more likely to avoid injury and death due to unsafe working conditions. 
They're five times uh, able to respond five times faster in financial downturns. And get this, those companies save $1,500 and an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation employees have rather than avoid. Right? So the power of communication in our relationships, the power of our tongues in the workplace. And we know uh, from James, we're learning that, that, that God has a plan and a way for our speech because he wants us to have strong relationships and he wants us to work to build a better world. And so as I share those four horsemen, I don't want you to get overwhelmed, right? There may be some conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like when I was reading through these and studying this, I was convicted for ways that I, I partner with those horsemen, right? Conviction leads us to God and leads us to repentance and gives us hope because we know that with the Lord there's mercy. Condemnation weighs us down and tells us we're terrible and we're never going to change. Don't shut down here with condemnation. There may be an appropriate place for conviction from the Holy Spirit and repentance, right? But with God, there's always hope for all of us tomorrow. So James goes into now having made the case for this is what our speech is like. This is the power of it. He begins to give us specific points of discipleship of how we as followers of Jesus are to use our tongues, use our speech to walk in the way of life and to bring life into others. To go there, we're going to flip back to the first chapter of James, James chapter 1, verse 26. And here's the first place in the book. He hits on it several places, but the first place he begins to speak about our speech. And he says this, he said, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So he said, first piece of advice, first way of the kingdom, First way of Jesus in our communication is developing the ability to keep a tight rein on our tongues, an ability to control our tongues, to speak when things need to be spoken and have the courage to do so, and to refrain and to be silent when it's time to be silent. He said we need to become people who keep a tight rein on our tongues. And then he goes in in verse 19, uh, he goes in deeper describing what that is like. Verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So in us getting a hold of our tongues, in us getting a tight rein on our tongues, Right? He goes into what that looks like is learning to be people who are quick to listen. Now, I used to be a teacher in middle school, and one year as we were getting ready for school to start, we had a trainer come in uh, who did training for teachers. And so you show up, and if you're a teacher, you know what I'm talking about. You show up uh, to the training day, and this particular training was on listening. And I learned something that was eye-opening to me at this training. The trainer said that listening is not a natural skill. 
I mean, people can hear, we can hear sound, but actually learning to listen to someone, to hear what they're saying, to be able to understand what they're saying and do something with it, the trainer said, this is a skill that must be learned. And they said in the environment that we were teaching in, particularly with at-risk kids, they said, we find that kids' listening skills are, are particularly low. That muscle has not been worked out like it needs to be. And so they gave us drills that they wanted us to do with the kids to help them build that listening muscle. As I've gotten older, I've realized it's not just the fifth grade uh, kids that I was teaching that year that needed help with listening. We all need help with becoming better listeners, with building that listening muscle. And James is going in and saying, hey, when you're in a crucial conversation, when the stakes are high, you need to become the type of person that's quick to listen. You need to become the type of person that will listen to people. So this is what a tight rein looks like. This is what the way of Jesus looks like. This is what the way of life looks like in our tongues is that we would be people who are quick to listen and then slow to speak, right? He doesn't say don't speak. Some of us, that's our problem is that we just stuff things down, right? He's not saying that. Some of us are more hot-tempered and we'll just say whatever comes to mind. What he's saying is we want to be slow to speak. We want to be thoughtful in what we say. I think the fire illustration is a really good one for uh, understanding this, for understanding this idea of being slow to speak. In the right situations, fire is incredibly life-giving. Over the last hundred years in the forests of America, uh, we've grown more proficient in putting out forest fires. But what they found in the amount of fires that we put out is that there were actually benefits ways that the fire benefited the ecosystem in the forest. It, it burned off dead plants. It created more sunlight for new generations of vegetation to grow. For pine cones, they wouldn't release their seeds except when they were in fire. And so they're having a problem with the next generation and with these cycles of life because they'd cut out all the fire. So what they began to do is to introduce this concept. They didn't want it to get out of control but they introduced this concept of a controlled burn, a regulated fire, where they would go through and systematically let fire cleanse certain areas so that new life could come. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what James is hitting on with our tongues. When our tongues get out of control, when our speech gets out of control, when we don't have a tight rein on it, right? It is like a fire that can burn and destroy like a forest fire. But the goal is not not to speak, to, to put out the fire, not to have fire. That's not what we're saying. The goal is to have what, what um, is called a controlled burn. That we have the fire. We need the fire. It brings cleansing. It brings life. There are times where we need to speak up and, and challenge people and correct people and voice our opinions, Right? But we want that to be in a controlled way, in a way that uses the fire to bring life out of a situation and not burn up a situation to leave it uh, destroyed. In chapter 2, verse 12, he moves into his next point of discipleship on the way that we speak. And he says this, he said, speak and act as those who are being judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is saying, hey, we've got to learn to reign in our tongues. We've got to learn to be people who are quick to listen and slow to speak, right? And he says, when we're speaking, we need to learn to be the type of people who their speech is flavored and seasoned with mercy. Because with the same standard that we're judging other people, we're going to be judged by that standard. We as the followers of Jesus, we're to be known as people of mercy and to let our speech be seasoned with mercy for one another. I think one of the easiest ways to grow in mercy is to try and put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're speaking to and try and put yourself in their world and think about it from their perspective. After World War II, uh, there was a trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the chief perpetrators of the Holocaust. He was on trial, and they needed uh, some people who had been a part of the Holocaust and survived to come and be witnesses within the trial. And so they uh, got one man named Yahiel Danur, and they brought him to the trial, and, and he was sitting there getting ready to testify, and he saw Eichmann, and he broke down weeping onto the floor. And no one knew why. They figured he must be having flashbacks or just the pain of the whole situation. He broke down. Later, they interviewed him, and they asked him what was going on there. And he said, when I saw Eichmann, I expected to see a monster. I expected to see this diabolical person, but when I saw him, I saw someone who was very like myself. And I realized that I could have easily made similar decisions, that I was not beyond this, but I was a person in need of mercy, right? Denur put himself in the place of Eichmann and got a realization of, man, this guy who perpetrated evil, right? He realized, Denur realized that he himself wasn't beyond becoming that. And that gave him a place of mercy to be able to bring forth the appropriate level of judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1, James gives us his last piece of counsel on what a controlled tongue or controlled burn looks like with our speech. And he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So he's saying, okay, we need to learn to become people who keep a tight rein on our tongues. We need to learn how to be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We need to become people who bring forth judgment, but it's seasoned with mercy. And now he's saying we need to be really hesitant about taking the place of a teacher, of saying, I'm going to teach you or you really how things should be. Because he said when you step into that place, you are stepping into a stricter judgment. Now our culture and our society runs almost directly opposite to these principles, right? We, we don't focus on having a tight rein on our tongues. We focus on letting our tongues loose and just being able to say whatever we think in the moment. 
We don't focus on being quick to listen and slow to speak, right? We want to be uh, quick to speak and slow to listen and we live in the age of outrage where we believe our uh, anger just out of control is going to produce God's righteousness. We don't live in an age where we season our judgment with mercy and we don't live in an age that tells us you need to be careful when you step into the place of trying to teach someone else. He says, because when you step into that place, you're going to be judged with a stricter judgment. And so we want to be the type of people, what God has for us, where Jesus is leading us, particularly in the divided time in which we live, is to be people who harness the power of our tongue, to be people who let that control burn, the fire bring out life. That when we speak words, they build up, or if they tear down, it's for the purpose of building up in the end that we would be those type of people. And what's encouraging to me about all of this is that when I look at Jesus, Jesus has been the perfect example of this. Jesus never spoke an ill-fitted word. He never was quiet when he needed to speak up. He never... Uh, spoke up rashly, but it was quick to listen, slow to speak. His words were seasoned with mercy. Even when he's saying hard words, it was for the purpose of bringing life. And Jesus is the only one that could face the ultimate judgment and pass. And so what I want you to see is not a list of rules of this is what we need to do, but what I want you to see in what James is saying is I want you to see a person who we're called to follow. And as we follow Jesus, we want to follow him and let that shape the way that we speak to one another, particularly in this time. Now, I want to invite you uh, to go on a journey with me this week of taking these texts that we went over and taking time each day. Our church is a community. We're doing this, taking time to meditate on God's word. We're going to have our James reading plan up on our website and social media accounts for chapter 3. And I want to encourage you each day this week to go before God, to read these words, and let them season and marinate our lives as we together follow Jesus and become the people that God desires for us to be.